Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back. This is episode 97 and part two of my interview with David Pilch. We're going to get right down to it. Please subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. And uh, yeah, I had a ball talking to David a while back and so glad to bring it to you. If you're into the bass, you know, bass players and bass nerdiness or whatever, there's some good ones on, on this show. Uh, so if you haven't heard some of the older episodes, please go back and uh, check out Dennis Crouch is on uh, another epic two-parter going back uh, about a year or so. Uh, going back even further is Mike Bubb, the great bluegrass bass player. Also, don't forget uh, David Hood, one of the earliest episodes, the mighty Muscle Shoals house bassist David Hood. So uh, yeah, if you're into the bass, there, there's some pretty great episodes, more um, quality over quantity in the bass department, but that's the way it goes. So David Pilch, uh, if you missed part one, you need to go back and listen to that right now. So check that out from last week. Episode 96 is part one of David Pilch. And now without further ado, here is part two of my conversation with David Pilch. I hadn't really been a Larry Graham fan and all of a sudden I'm on a jingle and somebody says, can you do something like Bootsy Collins? And I'm like, Bootsy yeah. Collins, you know, and, and, and I'm struggling to all the things. And of course, you know, to get the equipment together. That doesn't spring to mind when I think of David Pilch. <laughs> yeah. Trying to play like Bootsy Collins. Well, <laughs> well, there's, there's some, there's some Neil Jason on the, uh, on the Blood, Sweat, and Tears record, there, right, there's right. some Neil Jason Brecker brothers. I mean, there was stuff that I was influenced by, you know. Byron Miller and uh, with George Duke, that song "Reach for It." There were things, you know, that there were electric bass things that I loved, but I didn't have a full-on 
you know, this was my James Brown period. Right, right. Yeah. And it was just all like, okay, I heard that. I like that. I emulate it. I, I, I like it. I eat it. I like it. I use it, you know? Yeah. And, and then the instruments were all, all over the place. I mean, really, I mean, I kind of eventually just really, I mean, the, the fretless bass was so idiomatic that it really didn't make sense for me at a certain point. And I, and I really didn't want to play it much. I'm sure the same way that, that, that Pino did where it was just like, okay, that, that's enough of that because mm-hmm. I don't really want to play that music all the time. And that's what that is. So how do you find a voice for that? How do you find a voice for the, for the double bass when, that's when harder. you're, it was hard. It was really hard. It wasn't until Holly Cole that I could do it. Because um, we did a lot of cover tunes. Oh, we okay. did a lot of R&B tunes. We yeah. did a lot of country tunes. I mean, we did a lot of country tunes with a lot of chords. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, we, but we did a lot of country tunes. Can you tell me a bit about your work with her and, and just your evolution from being a Toronto session guy into your move to L.A. and playing with her and Katie Lang? and It was that. It was her. I mean, it was okay. her for sure. Because that was where I discovered what the lyrics were for the songs. That was where I discovered a whole repertoire of songs that we could fashion and not just uh, improvise on. It right. was it was about it, it. That was the beginning of going. What is this song about? Now she had a particular angle for it. Like if if you listen to like Spring can really hang you up the most, which is I think it's maybe on her first her first uh, record, Girl Talk, which was. The, just the trio, just bass, piano, voice, Cal Rec, Mike, Peter Moore engineered it mm-hmm. live, all live. And that uh, song, you, you you know, you're playing the song and the arrangement is coming from the lyric and from the what the interpretation of the lyric is. something like girl talk she wouldn't do it in a campy way like like a like a jazz singer would she would do it in a in a like a kind of a a sort of this is a disgusting lyric for a mm-hmm. woman to say mm-hmm. right that's how she did it well i mean when she was she was young i mean she she was young when i first met her and that's the way she did it i mean i mean we used to do this version of misty where she she would scream one time. I mean, she was an improviser. So she, uh, at least early on, she was totally an improviser. And the first, I remember she did this in Misty. You know, the first line of Misty 
It's look at me, right? Yeah. Look at look at me. I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree, right? Mm -hmm. So she did look at me like she turned it into a Yoko Ono performance piece. Yeah. (laughs) So that she was making fun of the lyric, look at me. Right. I want your attention. Yeah. It was wild. I mean, that to me was like, that was like, oh, this is, and that, and my, and then I was, by that time, I was kind of out of the jet, uh, the traditional jazz scene. I was done. It was my school and I was done with it. That's a game changer too. Just suddenly having, having like a lyrically driven project where you're like, holy shit, there's this whole other side to music and songs that maybe you hadn't really thought about before. Absolutely a game changer. It was huge for me. And we were playing in, in clubs to, to, I mean, you know, we played in a club and some, some, somebody came up to me, you know, somebody 19 years old and said, I love that song, Honey Sucker Rose. <laughs> so, I mean, they were young and they were jazz people and they loved it. Yeah. And that was also, that was also new. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, dying. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't working with a saxophone player that was, that was getting me to bring triple cognacs into the bathroom so he could down them in the bathroom <laughs> and then come out. And, you, you know, I mean, it was, it was, I, the, the drummer wasn't, borrowing money to pay his bar tab and it wasn't just a bunch of musicians sitting there uh after work in the jazz club it was thrilling to me and so how did you end up with that gig in the first place was she just kicking around toronto yeah she <laughs> she came to toronto from halifax first time i met her she had had her wa- jaw wired shut she had just been in a car wreck oh god she was a she was just she was on fire this girl uh-huh. She was so out of her, you know, she was wild. She was great. Were you about the same age? No, no, no. Well, I guess we're not that different in age, but, but I would say we're about, I would say she was, you know, she was probably six years younger than me. And oh, at wow, that okay. time, yeah, that seemed like, a so at that time she was like, she was probably like 20 and I was 20. 26 or 27. Okay. And, and also I had been doing all this stuff. So it was a little bit, it was definitely different for me. Like it, it took just a little bit. It didn't take long and I really, really liked it. And also Aaron was also doing stuff with Molly Johnson at the time. And she lived at this place called the Cameron in Toronto, which was an art hotel, you know? And Gordy Johnson was in that scene a bunch and all that, right? Yes. Yes. And I think that that was sort of, I think they saved me to get me out of it. Honestly. I mean, I think it was really, I mean, I had done my schooling and the the jazz thing was, was great, but I mean, I think I was, I was not, that's not, I mean, I didn't consciously say I don't want to do this. I do remember thinking that I, I did find it very difficult to play six nights a week in the same club all the time. Yeah. With the same people always coming down there, you know, the guys after work and there's that guy and there's this guy. I mean, it was nice. I liked all those people in a way, but it was like a little depressing. My, too. I, I, I guess I had this dream that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go out and play. And of course the recording thing, that dream didn't come. I mean, my dream was to play at Bourbon street in Georgia's spaghetti house. That was my dream. And then when you, when you do it, <laughs> And then it was doing it. (laughs) Well, it was a bit, it wasn't, it was a bit of that. I mean, you better, you, it's not, you better be careful what you wish for, but I mean, you know, you might, if, 
you might want to modify what it is that you're doing. And right. and again, I, I would say in this, especially in this climate, man, it's adapting. I guess if you're a road musician now, you may not be a road musician for yeah. a year. You know, if you're, if you were a pit musician and you did shows all the time and the first day a synthesizer showed up, you may not be in the pit. That's right. After the synthesizers there. I mean, it's, there's a lot, you know, there were, there were days where I would go to work and there'd be a guy programming the bass on the keyboard. Okay. Maybe there's not going to be any bass on this record, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that was part of it for you. Like you, you had, you adapted at that point into this sort of new environment, a new style, maybe new clubs yeah. and, and stuff. And did that get you out of Toronto for the first time? It did. No, no. Blood, sweat and tears got me out. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was about travel, and that was about that was a real road gig. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it was kind of weirdly, you know, like touring in in buses that were not tour buses. You know, right. That was like real. That <laughs> was course. like that was the closest thing. Yeah, but it was still big time. Uh-huh. I mean, yep. it, in a way, you know. I mean, it was hotels and it was big gigs. I mean, in the states, it was more dinner theatery, but it was bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, Playboy clubs and oh, yeah. and. Uh, casinos and you know stuff like that it was weird because because they were already past their prime that band was already past their prime in the states but then you go to south america it's like i mean you could go to south america now and neil diamond is like the biggest star in the world right so so there's a less of a there's less of a uh, time stamp on things in different cultures you know mm-hmm. but so i did travel a lot with blood sweat tears and that that was amazing yeah, yeah, I bet. What was the trajectory like with Holly Cole? Like you started playing Incredible. with her at the very beginning, yeah. like just at the Cameron house and stuff. Yeah. And how long did it take before things started heating up with her? Cause that, I mean, she was huge later. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, uh, the next record that we did was, was, was a signed record. That was a record deal. Yeah. And, and it was still a trio. Okay. And, uh, that was, again, it was a huge game changer for me that the second record was produced by Greg Cohen, who was again, he turned in for me as I would have to say a a mentor, Mm -hmm. you know, he, he, the way he handled me on that partially because it was in a way it was inaccessible, Like he had to like my, my thing in that was so worked out. Right. Like what I did, whether it was percussion or melodies or parts, they were not the producer coming in going, could you try this? Could you try that? Yeah. It was, this is what we're doing. Blame it on my youth. I believed in everything. Like a child of three. But he was amazing. I mean, he came out one day. <laughs> I was trying to play the introduction to uh, 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 On the Street Where You Live. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this thing, this uh, interval I had to play. But... Yeah. Well, I couldn't 
and it was in harmony. They were in thirds oh, okay. with yeah. the piano or something. <sighs> I just couldn't play the tune. I could not play it in tune. I couldn't play it in tune. I was dying. Yeah. And we over and over and over again, he comes out of the booth. He's carrying a white grease fence. <laughs> Talk about life changing. Talk yeah. about a game changer. I mean, seriously, like it was like somebody, it was like, you mean there's an ignition to start this car? Like I don't have to actually push it down the road and engage it in first gear to get it to go. No, 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 no. There's a key here. So he marked up your, your neck. Yeah, no, he just said, put, you know, mark that, mark it, mark yeah. the one note you can't do. I said, uh, I mean, listen, listen to how funny this is. Is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? This was pre-Edgar Meyer putting frets in, which which to me was part of that, uh, what I had already experienced with Greg Cohen because uh-huh. he had released, he had liberated me. Right. He, and then, of course, then and actually really a game changer. Th- then there's a tuner. I mean, I struggled with intonation because the band was so exposed uh-huh. and I had to play, you know, everything I played was completely exposed. I was used to be... Oh, <laughs> didn't matter what i did before now it was like the big pas and 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 the bass turned up in the mix and yeah. and stuff and i i was kind of dying in a little bit because that's actually i i did do some studying at that point i took some lessons with joe Cornkin oh. because i was kind of didn't know what to practice uh-huh. and and i tried and i knew i had some problems that i had to figure out and it was good that i did that at that time because because I was just heading into playing with KD, who was the most in tune singer in the world. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I was, and playing with a pedal steel and that kind of stuff, I had to get that shit together. And I started it with Holly mm-hmm. and it was because the bass all of a sudden was, well, there was the voice. It, it was here. It's out there. I mean, there was no drums. The percussive thing was all in my territory. I did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, kind of made me impossible to play with with <laughs> for a lot of drummers for a while actually i had a very funny experience i played we used to play allison with holly and uh you know elvis, elvis costello yeah sure that tune allison and uh uh and we had this arrangement and 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 you, you know 25 years later when i'm in, living in california I, I i'm doing something with joe where I have to play with Elvis a song at the BMI awards or something. So we, we go over to his house to rehearse and Elvis comes in and, and his drummer, Pete, Pete Thomas is yeah. there. And, and we play Allison. You go back to your old way of doing it. <laughs> I mean, I kind of, in a fun way did it. It wasn't, it wasn't like, this is the demo. This is how it goes. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, Pete, Pete was not entertained. He <laughs> was, <laughs> <laughs> Not it, was, it was the first of, of, I would say, three really great stories that I have with Pete Thomas. But, but it, was the fir- it was the first one. And it taught me. I, and then again, it was me being 
an asshole. Right. I was just, I just thought, I know this song. I love this song. (laughs) I played this song, you know, but it was like, I mean, you try, you try playing a Beatles tune with Rusty Emerson and changing the, changing the part, man. Forget it. Right. Right. (laughs) It ain't going to fly, man. (laughs) Wow. That's hilarious. You know, there are certain things that are sacred. (laughs) So what, what did you, what did you do? Did you have to adapt and like go back to, Oh, Oh, it was the least of our problems. Let me tell you, that was, that was the, 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 I did. I, I'm not sure what I did. I can't remember what I did because it was all blurted out by the fact that it was all completely wiped out by the fact that on the BMI show, Solomon was singing the judgment. I heard this story from Jay. I heard, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so I won't tell the, I won't tell the story again, but, but the, but the, my part of the story was, was, well, fucking Jay wasn't there. That's right. <laughs> Because he he gave the gig to Pete because he knew something was going to go wrong, right? Well, maybe he did. He did. He does have that spidey sense. He said he, he knew something was up, and he 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 said that. You know that, what? He does have that spidey sense. You know, because I had done a sixty minutes thing with Solomon, and the saxophone player was standing behind Solomon, whispering the lyrics to the song. Oh my in god! Ear. And and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> you know, but but the. Uh, the thing that happened with with, <laughs> with Pete was just so did he did Jay I didn't I did did Jay talk about the fact that Pete had been there when we cut the judgment? No, he just talked about doing it at that event and and that Solomon came up to Joe like five minutes before you guys all went on. Yeah, and I don't like, know it. Yeah, I don't know yeah. the song. Well, this well this is there's a bit of poet poetic justice here okay because because elvis came to the studio when we were cutting the judgment okay there'll be lies there'll be tears a jury of your peers with a pitiful of experience and now the judgment Just to clarify for listeners, this is an Elvis Costello song being done by you guys with Solomon Burke on a Solomon Burke record, but it's an Elvis Costello song that Solomon basically right. does not know. Right. Okay. And it even if you did know it, it's got um, little uh, sort of operatic uh, interludes in it that go into a different time signature. Right. It is not a shout up for the mountain top song right it's right it's built in a way where you you can't take your way through even well he could take his way through anything except maybe a narrow except maybe a narrow doorway but uh he wanted to do it while elvis was there and elvis had a whole entourage with him and pete was part of the entourage okay and the record was such a thrill i mean really that record was so great that was the first record i did with jim that record Fast Train. If you listen to Fast Train, that's a love affair starting right oh, man, there. Man, that's cool. I mean that it, that was so great. And your lover has gone away. Don't it make you feel sad? And you're going on a journey way into the land, and you start breaking down. 
Cause you're under strength And you're jumping on Yes, you're jumping on a fast train Jumping on a fast train I was in heaven. That record was so great. Everything about it was great, except this. <laughs> Him wanting to do the song because the guy who wrote it was there. The guy writing it there was Elvis Costello with his whole entourage. Okay. And us getting yelled at, especially, especially, uh, he was so cruel to the to the piano player. It was, it was brutal. I mean, he did that thing where you yell at people. Oh, when, God when you can't do something, you know? Yeah, so yeah. he was yelling at him and, and I, I was dying inside because of the people in the booth. That to me was the, to me, that's, I mean, I felt bad on a lot of levels, but that was what was so bad is that it was all on display like that. Right. And that it appeared, it had appeared kind of the same way it appeared at the BMI thing, because there was a story about how after, you know, uh, Don was, came up to somebody and at a session and said, wow, Solomon Burke was amazing. What was wrong with the band? Right. Yeah. And so Solomon really could, he really could pull it off. I mean, that's what charisma does, you know? Yeah. And, and conviction and I'm right. And you're wrong. He's literally one of those guys that can sing the phone book and make it sound compelling. And that's what he did. Yeah. And, and, and you know they had to tell you heard the story about the teleprompter, right? And and he just read. Did you hear that part? Yeah, of it? and and that he basically like read through the song at and like yeah, a, a minute a minute in he was done, and you guys were just like, uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, you would have to have <laughs> taken you know serious training, seal maneuver training, or black ice skidding training with your car to know what to do with this train wreck. Oh my but God. for me to have this train wreck. With Pete sitting there, who had been there yep. in the in the, I mean, that to me was just that became my that that became what I found just absolutely sublime about the whole thing. I love Pete. I, I mean, and and we had a few funny things happen. I mean, we ended up getting to know each other after that. We didn't know each other. We didn't know each other for the Allison thing. We didn't know each other. I didn't know him when he came to the studio. Okay, I didn't really know him when this thing was happening, except that he leaned over to me at the, at the end of it. And we were maybe on stage together or off stage and he was standing beside me. And he said, you know, I mean, Stevie wonder was there and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Quincy Jones was there and, oh uh, uh, you know, uh, Elvis and Diana crawl were at the front table. I mean, this was a absolute classic train wreck. Yeah. And Pete, Pete looks over to me and goes, I guess, I'll never work in this town again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Did you guys get through the song in the studio okay? No, he had to sew it together. I think he did the, I think he, well, well, in the studio, Elvis Elvis came up and sang on the floor with us. Oh, okay, okay. That's how he got through it. He came out saying, he was beautiful. He kind of said, well, maybe I could lay it down. And then they stitched it together later. Okay. And, uh, uh, and he never heard it probably. And, uh, he certainly didn't learn it and it isn't easy and it isn't the kind of thing you could fake, which I'm sure he could, you know, he was great. I loved him. He was amazing. Uh, and it was really an incredible record for me. I, I loved it. And, um, 
Uh, but that little side story, you know, the war stories are fun. Oh, don't you sure. think? Oh, yeah, man. For sure. <laughs> I, I kind of wish there was a I, I'd love to put a book together. Unfortunately, I'm into many of them, but <laughs> but there's uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> what about some experiences with KD? Like, how did you go from playing with Holly into having the gig with KD? Because they seem to like kind of overlap when I look at your time. They did overlap. OK, Yeah, they did overlap. And it, and it was it was. It was through Ben, really. That that's where we got to go back to Ben. Okay. Ben Mink, Ben Mink, I knew from the late seventies yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And was he in Toronto? Then? And he he was he he's a Toronto boy. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was I a mean, Vancouver he's, guy. He's he, no, he he lives in Vancouver, but he's a Toronto boy. As a matter of fact, his okay. mother and my mother at, are at the same retirement home oh, right really? now. Okay. Yeah. So the last couple of times I. Um, was 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 there he was there to visit his mother and i was there to visit my mother okay but yeah he he still lives in vancouver but he was living in toronto yeah we had done some work together and he was doing demos for absolute torch and twang yeah which is 88 i think mm-hmm. something like that and is that the one right before ingenue yeah, and it's a really great record. Yeah. And I think I, 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 I mean, we just did the 25th anniversary of Ingenue, and some of the time, I felt, I felt like it was really important because everybody talks about Ingenue, which I understand, but I mean, I, for me, it was the change was absolute torch and twang. was really her her was ben writing with her and really he had a very strong concept of what he wanted mm-hmm. and he uh he wanted fretless bass on a couple of things i played fretless bass on a couple of things and then when they went to do the recording that was the first thing that was the first time i'd ever done this where i, I got to fly somewhere mm-hmm to go record and it was again that was yeah that was like oh my god where'd you do it you know was that la no no it's in vancouver oh okay at like little mountain or something i can't remember mushroom or something i I can't remember actually yeah i think Uh, i I think i remember seeing uh you know like a gold record of of both those records up on the walls of mushroom so you're probably right that's probably exactly where it was yeah i I, you know i have a really i do have a terrible memory there's a lot (laughs) i can't remember and if i can't remember it i make it up (laughs) and uh it was in vancouver and the demos were done in his place in in toronto yeah and then uh and then there was a band still the reclines were still together except for the things that were the fretless bass I don't think okay. I played any upright. I may, I'm not sure. I, I may have played a little bit of upright on that. I may have traveled there with an upright bass too. So did the reclines have, have a bass player at that point? Yeah, I think it was. John Diamond or something? John, I think it was. It might not have been. I okay. think it was. Yeah. There was, it was, it was a tough, difficult time because that band was not, they were not happy because oh. it was just starting, starting to be Ben and her. Yeah. Ben, her. Ben and, her. um, <laughs> And they were sort of getting, and, they were sort of getting edged out. 
that was the vibe I got. Yeah. And it certainly never, it was awkward for sure. Okay. I mean, it didn't feel like, like, Oh, Hey, great. There's another guy here. Right. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was like, Oh shit. There's another guy here. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I, I had trained, I had a little bit of training like this when I was really young and I used to wait on the stairs for my brother to get me to come downstairs and, and, um, he'd go, you know, this is how it goes. And then I'd get to play the bass on something, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was always eager, eager to jump in, even if it wasn't my, right. <laughs> even if it wasn't my play, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I went there and did that. And, and then just like, I, obviously they were still a band and they toured. Okay. And then Ingenue was done probably, I don't know how many years later, but that was the same deal. That was a fly out to Vancouver. That was all Ben. Then, had completely, complete. I mean, he was holed up in a hotel there. Yeah. He had a Fostex eight track, and the record sounded not much different than it sounds now. I wow. mean, that guy really, really did a number on that that record. A smile, hold me captive just a while. I can't explain why I become. That was R Randall Stoll was playing drums, right? Uh, did Randall play on that? I'm I pretty sure he did. Niche, yeah. But maybe it was maybe it was Randall. Yeah, because I know Randall did the later stuff. Oh, jeez, John Garrett fired. Oh, sent home. Oh my Day god, day two. Oy, oy, oy. Wow. By by um, Ben Mink. Yeah, you know Greg Penny was technically the producer. Oh, so probably probably him. But Ben for sure. Maybe all three have a production credit. I'm not sure who has okay. production credit. Yeah, and I'm sure that 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 it's Greg Penny still. For Ingenue, they had they had this idea. They wanted they were looking for a Joni Mitchell sound. Mm -hmm. Something about something about the joke that was sort of the first time I ever heard that kind of a thing done, you know, where they were looking for microphones that would, I mean, her voice, you know, they were looking for a Karen Carpenter, Joni Mitchell, that kind of sound in the microphone. Yeah. And, and, and they were thinking about things like that for production. And John Guerin, I guess, got sort of caught up in that, but not a click track guy at least not that day yeah and uh, so i don't know what they did I, I i don't remember tracking the drums so there was probably all machines because he had done everything and then i think they replaced it with oh somebody. okay and and because it was that heavily controlled i mean i'm telling it you sounds it was, very controlled like it's it's definitely it was f into the fire for me because i had never worked like that so what was the situation? Were you in the control room, like just overdubbing your bass lines on top of these things that Ben had been doing in the There hotel? were times, yeah, there were times where it was like that. I mean, I was given the songs and I, I spent a lot of time learning the songs. Yeah. And then because they were, you know, Ben hadn't demoed it on, on basses. He didn't have the basses demoed. Okay. So there wasn't that. And the thing that I remember being very, very fortunate for me is that is that they wanted me to come up with stuff, but then once I came up with it, they wanted it to be that. 
if okay. it was something they liked and that, and they, they would, were sometimes it was like, I kind of felt like the pocket center ice with two centers on my head. Okay. I'd be playing something and they'd be both like, yeah, that's good. We like that. I mean, and both of them just genius ears. Her, I never, I never knew how good her ears were until I saw her tune some crazy harp one day on, on a TV show. And I, I was, I was watching with delight thinking she was going to have her Chapman stick moment. We'd never be able to get it in tune. (laughs) And there she was tuning it up. And it was like, you know, she's really, you know, the tune thing was intense for me. So playing the fretless bass with a fiddle player who's got great ears and a perfection, and they're both perfectionists. It really took me, I mean, gone were the days of a full glass of vodka. uh, (laughs) And... Watch over me with a mother's eye, judging my worth only to glorify. Watch over me. How long were you spending on a track for that record? Well, you know, I would say we did maybe two or three tracks a day, maybe okay. yeah. two two tracks a day, maybe 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 one or two. I mean, they were they were records for real, yeah. And they were and 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 I don't remember how many people tracked. I just know that the drummer went home and there was there was no drummer. So probably Teddy was there because Teddy was always there with me. Okay, and. Uh, and we would sort of come up with our stuff at the same time. And there was a lot of, you know, it was, there was, there was, I believe, well, when, what was the first record where it would have been Pro Tools? Because I mean, you know, they definitely got into the perfection thing. Probably right, it, it you, got, you know, right around that time, maybe a little later, I guess. That album was probably done on tape though, right? Yeah, it's a good question. I, 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 I just, I know that that stuff had to be perfect. Yeah. And I know I got to think of a lot of the stuff first and play it. Yeah. But then I would have to clean things up, you know, okay. I, and I would have to sort of remember what I had done, which I wasn't good at doing ever. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, I mean, I just, again, I didn't grow up doing that. You know, I, I didn't ever work with anybody who did the same thing. I mean, people did do the same thing over again, but that wasn't the, you, you know, that wasn't sort of, the, it wasn't, I'm looking for a part. Yeah. And this suddenly you, know? you are. Yes. That's yeah. a very part oriented record. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, but they let me come up. I came up with the parts, yeah. and then so I made my bed, and then I had to sleep in it. <laughs> so with with I came up with something, then it needed to be you know, and there would be some some uh, finessing right. uh, that would go on uh, because it was fretless or yeah. stuff like that. And and uh, and actually, what was really what I like about that stuff, and and we just did the 25th anniversary, and she asked me to play fretless on the record. Uh, she asked me on to play tour. it on the tour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, just to quickly answer your question, I didn't tour with her. I did those records. I was doing those records with Holly. I remember doing Don't Smoke in Bed, that record with Holly when when I saw KB win the Grammy. And and I wasn't I wasn't touring with her. And okay. I did not tour with her until after I had moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, to uh, to and I did drag with her with right. uh, Abe Laboreal and and. Uh, Craig Street and yep. Kevin Bright and 
those we did that record and then i went on tour with her and then i and then i toured with her pretty much up until watershed where we wrote together yeah and we produced that we didn't produce it together but we we did that record together it was beautiful and uh so i i've had a tremendous um relationship with her I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about one other record I really wanted to ask you about was is Blues Dream, the, the Bill Frizzell record. And um, yeah. I know that you you haven't done a lot of stuff with Bill. Uh, maybe you've done live stuff that I don't know about, but I, it, I think that's the only record you did with him. But that record has such a vibe. And also the, just the sound of the bass is so pronounced and amazing on that record. Um, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about playing with Bill and and, and the process of that record and how you got your sounds and stuff like that. Yeah. I initially subbed for, for uh, Victor Krause when he couldn't tour oh. uh, good dog, good dog happy, happy man. man. Right. And I was asked to, to, to go on tour. Okay. And first of all, I, I have to say one of the greatest experiences for me consistently is when I have to learn something. I, I, I did, I did talk about it being, being a negative thing. Although, my respect for Pino was immense, but, but with Victor, it was more like, I, I mean, I had a lot of l- music to listen to, which I felt I needed to listen to in order to get uh, comfortable with it. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I spent a tremendous amount of time listening to the good man and gone like a train. Yeah. And my, and I just loved, I just was like, Oh man, Victor Krause, this is beautiful. You know, and it's such a nice way to get to know somebody's playing. first feeling about it was me sort of getting to know Bill through Victor's uh, hands, you know, yeah. and approach. And then, and then going, the first gig was a traveling gig and it was, it was kind of a, kind of a fairy tale. It was like a jazz festival in Italy and Brian Blade was playing drums Wow! and the rehearsal with Brian Blade, he brought more music to that than I could, you know, all the listening that I did, and I knew he hadn't done any of that because he wouldn't have needed to. Mm-hmm. He was so inside the music. I that that was an absolutely mind-boggling experience for me. Mm. Was to play with with Brian, playing playing that one sound check and the one gig, and that's the only. He was actually supposed to do the whole tour, yeah, and then he went off to he went off to play with Seal. Oh, okay. So he, he he had to bail, yeah, and and he didn't do the tour. But that one sound check and one fairy tale gig in a you know in a 
in a pre you know Christianity Italian village. It was just oh man insane. It was a just a dream. It was a dream. Uh, it was amazing. A blues As dream. a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah, it was a dream. Well, and then I toured, and I was basically subbing for Victor. So who was playing drums then on the tour? Well, uh, Kenny Wallace. Oh, right. Okay. And then uh, at some point, you know, he probably does a record every year, if yeah. not two or three. Yeah. And that music started coming out and showing up at sound checks with oh, okay. little, little snippets. And I thought, oh, this is a real composer. These beautiful little sketches. I still have a book of his charts that have drawings on them and wow. things that, that are just beautiful about it. It was just all, it was just, again, it was a dream to be able to, to be able to play somebody's music who was so, so, uh, uh, generous with, uh, really let you do your thing with what they wanted you to do. Yeah. And had, had uh, you worked with Bill before or Lee Townsend? Like how, how did you end up in the, in the band? Greg Lease. Oh, Greg. Okay. Yeah. I met Greg on absolute torch and twang. So I had already known Greg. Greg, I've probably known him longer than I've known, may, actually, probably anybody in LA. Yeah. So, so, uh, so at that time, he had done that song, and and I guess they needed a sub, and that's that's how you get a gig. That's how you get a gig, man. Is when you're in a room and it needs to be generally it needs to be more than one person. I find it needs to be a couple of people yep. that say, "Yeah, that guy's that that can do it." Mm-hmm. I think that's how I got the gig. Maybe KD. I I think he had a thing. I think he was familiar with K, KD, so maybe there was that. Yep. Bill yep. Bill was, but I I didn't know Bill, and and I wasn't doing any jazz stuff. It was the first. When I came to LA, I didn't do any jazz gigs. I mean, I would not, I'm still not on the jazz scene, really, it, which was great. Like when I left it in Toronto, I left it. Right. It, it ended up that I was in bands and then, then it ended up that I would do sessions and, 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 and there'd be different kinds of music. And the jazz thing was always kind of, it, was, it wasn't always the thing that I identified with. Mm-hmm. You know, we did that record and, and I think he, you know, he had a concept for that record. There, there's, uh, there's a beautiful horn section there. Uh, Curtis Falks, right, and Ron Miles. Yeah, it's a beautiful. Oh, it, you know, it's, so good. It, it was great, and those, and we toured a lot. I think I toured, I think I toured a couple of years with him, and it was a lot of that really great European festivals back, kind of back in the day when, when, um, when there was so much work for for instrumental. American musicians yeah. over there. It, it may, I'm not sure if it's the same, but it, it, I mean, I'm sure he works every day over there if he wants, but, but it certainly at that time, it was, it was great. And it was, I would imagine that he shows up with very specific like horn parts. Cause those guys are really playing parts and harmonies to what Bill has in mind. But yeah. you, are you left to your own devices in that situation pretty much? Or does he write out parts for you as well? Or what was that like? Yeah, there's, <laughs> There's some parts. There's, yeah, there's, there's, uh, 
Yeah, you should take a look at Ron Carter sometime. That's a pretty good part to read. Yeah. It's it's got two notes written uh-huh. that never land on a downbeat. Okay. All the bass notes are tied over across the bar lines. Yeah. Never any on one. Yeah. Always the same two notes. Okay. It took me on an odyssey that lasted many, many years. Wow. So, it, it, you know, in terms of, you know, understanding what it was about that song, you know, uh-huh. not to mention the whole Ron Carter part of it, which is its own story. What was the explanation for that title? Well, I don't know what his explanation for that title was, but we ended up doing a double bill at the Blue Note. Yeah. With Ron Carter playing duet with him for the first set and me playing with the quartet for the second set. Oh, wow. And after we did that gig, my sense of why it was called Ron Carter was was completely different. Uh, anything I could ever, I would never have believed that it would be about that. <laughs> always felt like I was trying to jump into a skipping rope, double Dutch. You know how you have yeah. to go, you, you, right? I know exactly what you mean. Because yeah. now that I've studied the song, there is a downbeat in the melody of yeah. one, but 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 um, Kenny would never play the downbeat anywhere. So there was never a downbeat from him when we recorded it or played it. Uh, you'd have to keep this... I would keep this baseline going all the way through, but but often I I started to feel like I was floating away on a on a raft yep. into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and then and that's how I would feel when I was playing it with uh, with Kenny, and then and then uh, Joey Barron played it with us at mm-hmm. uh, so you know Bill never told anybody what to play when Joey played it. Joey played it. He played drum beat, hip hop, high speed grooves at a different tempo. Wow. Through it, which is different, which is like trying to log roll with somebody (laughs) swimming beside you, knocking the log with a paddle. I was just dying. (laughs) I mean, dying, Uh, dying. And, and then it was so funny because actually Joey played the bass line. He he did the it's a it's just da 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 you know but uh-huh. it goes over and over and over again and and he actually threw me it was so funny he played the baseline to get me back because I just you know I'm like oh like on the kick drum or something oh he, he played it on the cymbals I okay he played it really loud and he's amazing Joey Barrett he is amazing oh yeah and then and then we played it at the Montreal Jazz Festival. With Matt Chamberlain, oh and I had never—I don't think I had met Matt, Matt Chamberlain at that point. Now I know Matt. We did the Randy Newman record yeah. together. We've had—we've done some nice stuff together. I love playing with Matt, but and I always love love to tell him like tell him this that he was the first drummer ever to play the downbeat on that so song. that it went 
so that it went boom, da da da, three, four, boom, da da da. See, with that, it's so easy. But you take that thing away, and it was like it was an exercise for me. That that tune was really good. so. I love that tune. It's on that record. Yep, I, I love the way it sounds. Uh, I I. I, it, it took me on an odyssey, a, a, a Ron Carter odyssey, a drummer odyssey. Man. Uh, uh, yeah, it's great. He was very, very, I learned a lot playing with him and it was, it was, uh, it was a joy to play his music. What about sonically on that record? I don't know what about it sticks out to me as as far as like something of yours that I really feel like sounds amazing. But, you know, a lot of the records that you do have that amazing sound to them. But that one in particular, like, was there anything different you did as far as like just miking the bass or, or the size? of the No, no, I, you know, I honestly, I'm not sure I remember who the engineer was on that record. Tucker Martin, or was he not involved? I don't think it was him. And okay. I know Lee was there and Lee was always there. And yeah. I don't recall, you know, as far as I can remember, and I do, I have to date this, was this before the Madeline, you know, I remember the Madeline Peru record, mm-hmm. Careless Love, was the very first record that I ever recorded without using a DI and a mic. Oh, okay. And that was a, that was a real... You know, uh, that I was afraid because I never thought that my instrument had the sound sound to do that. Mm-hmm. I always felt that it was it had to be augmented. I did. I did. I, 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 I unfortunately did not discover that for a very long time. And it was on that record that, that I know there was no micro, that there was no okay. DI on it. I would think that there was a DI, and I think for a while I had this shirtler, which was a Swiss pickup that was built into the bridge that sounded really, really good. That when it broke and I got another one, it didn't sound the same. Oh, and yeah. like, I find that to be the nature of many of the beasts. I mean, I just find that like if something sounds good, it sounds good, and you can't necessarily replicate it. When, when we met, you were playing at Largo with um, Joe Henry, and that actually, to me, like I remember sitting out front for the sound check and hearing you and Joe and Jay and Patrick all playing together. But the way that the bass projected and I, you know, I, I'm sure partly it's the sound guy or whatever, but like you were standing right, right by Jay and Jay isn't the quietest drummer on the planet. I mean, he, he can be at times incredibly quiet, but you guys were playing like full tilt, but like the bass was so clear and you were not using a DI at all. 
like, are there any tricks to being able to do that? Or like, is that are just you a- sure? Are you sure there was no DI? No, but I'm pretty sure Joe wasn't playing into a DI. And I don't recall because 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 I I do have a you know I use a DPA live which which works with quiet drummers like Jay. What what's a DPA? Uh, it's a clip on mic. Oh, okay, yeah. And that works well live. That's also a different, that's a different bass um, that I didn't start. I mean, most of the stuff that I recorded with Holly and, and Bill and yeah. and stuff was the bass that I had when I was a kid, which is just a hybrid uh, uh, Czech bass. It's like half plywood, half carved. Yeah. Never, ever thought it was good enough. It's certainly never, because I grew up playing with pickups and amps, I never, ever played acoustically. I never got used to it. I, I did, it didn't feel right to me. It never was loud enough. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really start to figure out what the actual instrument sounded like because I was always struggling with pickups. You know, it's yep. like that thing that, that I find with guitar players, like where you're just kind of amazed, like where they come in with, they come into a recording studio and they go, okay, I, I want to plug into my rack, right. you know? And, and it's like, oh God, why? <laughs> You know, (laughs) well, because that's what, that's what they do all the time. And that's what you get used to. And I never really got used to, I, it never was loud enough acoustically. So I never played it acoustically. Now I do. Do you get much through the monitors coming back at you or do you just let it go out into the room and know that what you're playing is projecting? Well, it depends. It depends. But the mic, the mic is a little tricky to get back through the monitors but, but, yeah. uh, because you, you have to worry about feedback, but you can get a part of it, a part of that signal to come back so that you can, so that you can get the element. See, the thing that's always missing from, from the piezo, I mean, all, they're all piezos, right? Yeah. All those pickups are the same. I mean, I don't care what you call it. I, I care where you put it. Mm-hmm. They all, it, it's all just like how they package it, and where they put it. Yeah. But from the from the Barkus Berry to the Polytone to the Underwood to the Realist pickup, they're all piezos. So, yeah. and none of them give you the sound of the bass of, of the finger. Yeah, I totally they, know. What you you mean. don't get you don't get the finger. So you don't get a whole part. It's like it's like it just doesn't resonate. You get, you can get tons of low end. So. Sometimes just putting in a little bit of the mic just to get a little bit of that thump. And yeah. now, I mean, again, I had to work backwards, man. I mean, I came up at the worst time. I mean, the guys I was listening to, some of the guys I was listening to playing the clubs was a Barkus Berry, steel strings on an upright bass, uh, loud through an amp, yeah. tons of sustain. There was a guy in Toronto that got asked by Peggy Lee in the middle of playing fever to play it on its fender bass. Cause it sounded more like an upright than the upright. <laughs> That's what we grew up playing. I mean, I had to work backwards. I mean, I always loved Paul chambers, yeah. but I didn't know it was because it was, it was microphone and gut string. I didn't know. I just didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know what a gut string did until I played Dennis's. Uh, the, the, the Dennis Crouch had a bass that he left in LA for uh, T-bone, yeah. T-Bone session. And that was the first bass I ever played with a gut string. And now I was like, Oh my God, really? That's, this is what, this is why I've been overplaying. I mean, I've always been playing 
too hard to try and get it to sound like it had a shorter throw, you know, like a shorter, like more percussive. And the gut string accomplishes that? The gut string does it naturally. It just has has a, um, it thumps without having to pretend you're thumping. Right. I mean, you know, the, if you if you if you've got a bass that isn't set up to thump, then you got to you got to pretend to do it. Yeah, it's it's like you're dumbing it down. It's it's like you're faking it in a way. Uh-huh. You know, unless you have the instrument that actually has the has the uh, you know. I mean, it's like you know what it's like. It's like putting foam under the bridge. Right. Foam does that. Yeah, and that's why foam. And I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I just I started to when I first got my first you know country gentleman bass with a with a nylon string tape wound string on it i was like oh i like this <laughs> and then it was the flat strings then it was the flat strings and the flat strings on the hofter and the flat strings yeah. on the on the jazz bass and and they were all thumping and then all of a sudden the basses all became kind of the same then i stopped struggling with then it wasn't oh i play this bass for this kind of music i play this bass nah it isn't that. It's all just. It's all just. It's a thing. like a. It's a thing, and it's yeah. they, 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 to me. They all sound the same now. Now my 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 sixty two jazz with the with the with the seventies Dean Markley ground wound strings on it feels very similar to the King plywood bass with the nylon string okay. with the uh, gut strings on it. Feels very similar. I yeah. can. I feel very much. I'm not doing that thing anymore. I can't, do, I gave it up. Like I couldn't do the, okay, now it's my five string and here's the round, round string. Yeah. I mean, I have different instruments that basically all sound low and thumpy <laughs> and subby. And there's a pretty, there's a very pretty kind of, uh, mo- there's a melodic thing that comes with the, with the gut string. It's like so pretty, you know, and the Absolutely. Hoffner sounds so pretty. It, it it can sound so pretty. I love the melodious thing for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I I really it's do a big like part that. Of your playing, but yeah. I but I do like the I do like the thump and and the thumping comes from the mics mm-hmm. and the thumping comes from the setup. You know and like higher action uh, accomplishes that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, again, I think maybe I really did overplay for a long time. I uh, you know like really like like. P- pulling it and once i once i found that the instrument because i was trying to get it to be percussive mm-hmm. and and then and then when i found that the you know the strings and the, and that you know the instruments that had you know this plywood bass now has a has a i found it very many it took me many years to find a bass that i felt had the low end as low as when you kept going lower i mean even the one that i played with for many many years with bill to me the e string wasn't quite as solid when you went down so you'd, oh. you'd have to go you, you, i don't know what you, 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 you ever had an instrument where there's like one note that sounds great on your on your instrument i've got guitars where where they just like speak in a certain tuning that that when you tune it to a normal tune guitar tuning suddenly the guitar sounds like shit yeah yeah well if you if you have if you have an a string that sounds great on your bass and it sounds kind of a little bit better than the E string, then you kind of have to back off on the A string. You can't, yeah. <laughs> can't like you can't, you can't hang out there, the you know? Yeah. But I mean, again, it took me so. I mean, I just thought that's a lifetime you know, of learning. The difference now. between the difference between you know squeezing balls to have chops in your left hand, and I mean chops it in your right hand, 
and then and then 30 years later your 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 gratification comes from an in tune you know f natural the first note on the fret of the bass playing one that's in tune and just going oh fuck that sounds feels so good to have just to be clear yeah. about the pitch and and to have a solid grip on it i mean I mean, I went from a right being a right-handed bass player to being a left-handed bass player. I mean, that's what that oh, was the big interesting. difference for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm a left. I'm a left-handed bass player now. I, I, and it's good because I mean, I, I, I would pr- probably die if I had to keep thrashing it the way I've been thrashing it. But <laughs> and and the left hand is is a whole other bag. I yeah. mean, it's just like it's just it's just a different animal. The left hand, and I'm a big fan of left hands. I, I admire people's left hands. <laughs> sure. What's not to like? Yeah. Well, listen, man, I, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but we've taken, I've taken up enough of your time and uh, I just, it's been so great to hear these stories and your, your philosophy on music and stuff. I thank you so much for talking to me. Well, I, I have to say, I listened to a number of your shows and I really enjoyed listening to it i i i I, and one of the ones that 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 was um most interesting to me was it's so ironic i find because you think oh this is a small world you know Mm -hmm. like you would think that i would know colin linden and being in toronto being we're both both almost the exact same age yeah we did work together in the dark period of commercials in the eighties, although we were all happy to be able to work and go eat sushi. Um, that was the only interaction I had with him. And I didn't know anything about all the stuff that he was talking about. And <laughs> so much of it was related to really just the other side of the tracks. Yeah. It's amazing how, it how, was, mu- how little crossover there can be in a city like Toronto where like a, it's a big city, obviously, but like. it was really, really interesting to me. I mean, I'm going to call him one day because I really enjoyed it. I mean, there was, there was crossover. I mean, there was, there was, there was, I mean, I played with BB Gabor with um, John Wynott and Gary Craig and, okay, yeah. and there was, there was a little bit of crossover. And then there was those jingles a couple of times where I saw him, but I mean, I was just so delighted to hear to hear it and and it was so different you know because so, so much of it is coming from that tradition i really enjoyed it and and oh, it great. made me it made, made me want to call call and say man it was just so great to, to hear it because there was all this going on and i mean i knew about the clubs i never sort of went to them and yeah and uh i knew a lot of the names and and then there were people that we sort of a little bit had had crossed over. Right. Yeah, it was really very enjoyable. And a lot of your shows have been very enjoyable. To oh, me. Thank I mean, you. I, I really, I, I really think it's, it's, uh, it's been great to hear, to, to hear people, you know, talking about stuff with, without really an agenda and just, and just kind of talking about what it is that they've done and what they do. Just you know? That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And well, Gian Gameshi, 
Move over. <laughs> He's moved over. Believe me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I hope we can cross paths, man, and this shit all clears up. And I don't know, maybe you know. Yeah. Up. Well, maybe we'll meet. We'll meet. Maybe we'll we'll meet uh, uh, on the. Uh, I'm enjoying. I mean, I, I'm working on something right now. A bunch of tracks with Kevin and and Davide, and it's been fun. I feel like I'm back a little bit able to work with all the people i'm working with my brother online well thanks man all right adapt adapt that's the that's the word of the day (laughs) this episode is brought to you by the word adapt take care man okay thanks Bye. bye All right, there we have it. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a gripping conversation. I loved talking to that guy and had some fun. I hope you did too and learned some stuff. And we'll see you in a couple weeks and I'll be bringing you another episode. Music makers and soul shakers. See you then. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers